This is an ABC podcast. Hey, how you doing? Ange McCormack with you for the Hack Podcast today. I'm filling in for Dave Marchese while he rests his voice. Don't worry, though, he'll be back with you soon to keep Hack's election road trip rolling. In today's episode, though, could you last almost 20 hours on a plane? What if you were stuck next to a screaming baby or in the middle seat? Could you do it? In a bit in this episode, we'll talk about these new ultra-long-haul flights that get you from Sydney to New York in one trip, no stopovers, and what the future of travel looks like. Plus, we're going to look at ADHD and how much it costs to get a diagnosis. It's not cheap, I'll tell you that much. If you've broken the bank to get diagnosed or know someone who has, stick around for that story coming up. First, though, there's some news for first home buyers. Hack. So I hear you're trying to buy a house in Australia right now. Good f-ing luck with that because it's pretty cooked at the moment. On Triple J. Yeah, pretty cooked is one way to refer to it. It is so hard for a young person to get into the housing market right now. Prices are crazy. In some cities, getting a deposit together means saving for years, even more than a decade sometimes. On the weekend, Labor announced its first homebuyers policy. If they win the election, they want to basically co-own a house with you and pay for 30% of your own home. What do you want to see the government do to help you get into the housing market? Do you like this idea? Give me a call, 1300 36 or text in 0439 757 Here's Claudia Long to explain how Labor's policy would work, what the catches are and how it compares to the other parties. When it comes to housing, politicians have got it made. If you're not kicking up your heels in the lodge at the end of the day, you're getting accommodation allowances and there's a pretty good chance you've got an extra property or two up your sleeve. But unfortunately, the rest of us are not in the same boat. The price of renting and buying a place is massive and it's only going up every day. It's been a problem for ages, but now it's become an election issue as well. So how do politicians reckon they can fix it? Yesterday, Labor leader Anthony Albanese announced a pretty big plan that they reckon will help more young home buyers into their first place. The great Australian dream of owning your own home, we're in danger of being out of reach for a generation. Here's the pitch. We will contribute up to 40% of the purchase price of a new home or 30% of an existing home. It's called the Help to Buy program. And it's basically what it says on the tin. A Labor government would help you buy a place, with the price capped depending on the market you're looking to buy in. If you're a single Pringle, you'll be able to access the program if you're earning under 90,000 bucks a year. If you're shacking up with your partner, you'll be able to get into the scheme if your combined income is under 120k a year. The whole idea is that over time, you buy the government out of their stake in the property. There's been concern it could drive up prices, but Labor reckons that... In Western Australia, they've had a very similar plan now for 30 years. What it's done is enable people to get into housing who wouldn't otherwise get there. And Anthony Albanese reckons it could have an upside for the government wallet. And it's also produced a return to the government. It's a very, very positive plan. Hack asked Anthony Albanese if he's up for a chat about this policy, but he wasn't available today. The party's also flagged it wants to spend big on social housing with the $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund. So that's Labor's plan. But what about the coalition government? Well, the PM had a suggestion. Best way to support people who are renting a house is to help them buy a house. The government aren't fans of Labor's plan. They reckon their scheme's better. It's always been hard and it's increasingly hard, particularly today. But what the figures show 
is it 164,000 Australians last year getting into their first home? It's called the First Home Guarantee Scheme, where first-home buyers are able to purchase a place by fronting up 5% of the deposit, while the government guarantees the rest, around 15%. The government also implemented the First Home Buyer Super Saver Scheme. And yeah, it's a mouthful, but it's where you use your voluntary contributions to your super account to save for a deposit, because you pay less tax on the money you put in your super fund. So it's not drawing on the money that you have to put into your super, which will support you when you're old, but you can basically top it up and then withdraw that money later on. We've ensured that 300,000 Australians over the last three years have been able to get into their first home and at a time, and, and or into their own home at a time when it's been hard to do so. Politics isn't all about the big parties. The Greens are more into Labor's proposal, but they'd like to see it go further. They say if they end up in a position of influence after the election, they'll try and take it a bit further. 95% of first home buyers won't be able to access Labor's hard-to-get grant. The Greens will push Labor to do better. OK, but houses and apartments and units are still really, really expensive. And even if buying a home is made easier, you might not actually want to buy a place right now. So what about assistance for those of us who are renting? Well, yeah, there isn't a lot on the table when it comes to rent assistance. In fact, it seems like it's been all but forgotten by the major parties. Hack on Triple J. Claudia Long reporting there. On the Triple J text line, someone says help to buy would be better if they scrapped negative gearing too. Someone else says, why does this sound suspicious? And someone says, rest up king to Dave Marchese. That's right, this is Andrew McCormack here filling in for Dave Marchese today on Hack. But let's look at this idea a little bit more with Brendan Coates. He's the Economic Policy Program Director at the Grattan Institute. He's an expert in housing and basically writes proposals like this for a living. Hey, Brendan, how would you rate Labor's housing policy maybe out of five stars. Hi, Anne. So, look, we'd rate it pretty well, given it's very similar to something that we actually proposed back in February this year. Right. So, you know, full disclosure... They kind of stole your idea. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, which, you know, is the business that we're in um, at Grattan. So, you know, overall, I think the policy, you know, will it's a, it's a piece of the puzzle in, in, in fixing affordability um, for younger and older Australians. It's not a panacea, you know, as the comments suggested, we still need to deal with the tax concessions around housing. You still need to fix planning rules that allow more housing to be built where people want to live. But this particular scheme will help, uh, is relatively well targeted in helping lower income earners to access the housing market, probably particularly older Australians that otherwise, you know, are likely to not own their own home and be at risk of poverty in retirement. Gotcha. So you said it's not a panacea, it's not perfect. Um, the coalition obviously aren't fans of this policy and today they said that this whole thing could drive up house prices basically because, you know, if a, suddenly a bunch more people can buy houses, the demand goes up. Is, is that true? How simple is it? I think, uh, you know, you always got to be careful when you're adding to demand for housing that you don't bid up prices and that the winners there are the people trying to sell those homes to first home buyers. In this instance, the scheme's small. Like, we're talking 10,000 of these um, yeah. these shared equity loans a year. Uh, that's in, in, the extra demand that's adding each year is a couple of billion dollars in what is a $9 trillion housing market. It's not going to have a big impact on prices um, compared to things like the fact that interest rates are likely to rise from here. In fact, the government's expansion of their deposit um, guarantee scheme you know, that allows people to borrow for just 5% and buy a house, that's probably going to have a larger impact on prices 
but still very small because it's 50,000 places a year now. Mm. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. I'm Ange McCormack filling in for Dave Marchese today. I'm chatting to Brendan Coates about Labor's first home buyers scheme that they've just launched over the weekend. Adam, you've called in. What do you think of this idea? Yeah, I just think, like, I live on the Central Coast. This is my first election I'm coming into. Yep. I just, if I'm considering to vote for a new party, I, I want to see new ideas. And that's why I kind of like this policy, because it feels like for the last few years of trying to follow the election, trying to follow news, there's just been nothing new with housing. Like, mm. I know you said about the first home buyers scheme, but what's that actually changing with the market itself? It doesn't really feel like much. Right. Do you think it could help you buy a home on the Central Coast? It's still pretty expensive there, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's getting worse here, just anecdotally, like even trying to get a rental, it's getting borderline impossible. So, yeah, I'd just like to see a new idea, see yeah. where it takes us. Thanks for the call, Adam. Um, Brendan, one of the rules with this idea is that if you're a couple, you have to have a combined income of under 120K. A lot of, you know, typical full-time workers, you know, earn around 60K or maybe a little bit more, meaning they wouldn't be allowed to take part in this scheme. What do you, what do you think about that earnings cap there? Is it too small? No, I don't think it is. We actually proposed a lower earnings cap. So there's a little right. bit of election inflation going on, you know, um, as the as Labor pitches this into the election campaign. Um, you know, this scheme is really for people who can't buy without the support. You know, that's how these schemes should be thought of. So it's not support for the average everyday person who's likely to otherwise end up buying a house, you know. And the, the fact is that the government does, would own 30 40% of your property um, and that won't be attractive to a lot of people uh, unless they think they really need the government support. So, you know, we think those uh, those income thresholds are fine. It covers, you know, $80,000, $90,000 for singles covers 80% of single working people sure. between the ages of 25 and 64. Like, it's a lot of people are still eligible. Yeah, but as you said there, it doesn't necessarily affect the... You might not, um, you know, the average everyday person in a couple still might not be able to access this scheme and this scheme doesn't necessarily solve that issue. So, you know, like, I, I don't know, is this policy, that there's there's room for improvement, I, I suppose some might say when they're voting, about getting more people into the housing market. Like, still, people are getting left out. So the, the, double, the, the, and the risk here is always, like, that double-edged sword. Like, the more you add to demand, the more you risk just bidding up the prices, which mm. is why you want to save these kind of schemes for people that probably can't buy. Otherwise, like... You know, I've you know, we've owned a home for about six years now, five years. We went through that process a few years ago, um, and it can be real. It is really hard, right? And so, um, you know, I I would have valued more support at the time, but I probably am not the person that that support should be aimed at uh, because I'm probably already you know, going like to get into the market. Yeah, are going to get into the market. You know, you want to save that support for people who don't have access to bank of mum and dad and don't have high income. Brendan, um, some people have given up on buying a home or even the idea of it, or they might just not even want to buy a home. It's not a given that you want to get into the market. You might enjoy renting and the flexibility of it. Um, but how much is renting and improving renters' rights been missing from this election? That's right. It is a huge issue that's been missing. You know, the, the, the focus doesn't necessarily have to be on home ownership. It's just unfortunately the world we live in in Australia where renting is not a particularly secure option for people, particularly as they get older and have families and eventually retire. So, you know, the Greens have been pushing more on, on the rental side. They've been pushing, you know, to try to improve um, tenancy rights, um, to work with the states on that. The issue is, of course, it is a state issue. So it is pretty hard um, for the federal government to try to get the states to change uh, tenancy law. That is a state government 
responsibility. Mm. All right, Brendan Coates, we're going to have to keep moving, but thanks so much for joining us today on Hack. Thanks, Ange. That's Brendan Coates there from the Graddon Institute. Heaps of you getting in touch on the text line. It's going off. Someone says, yes, this is great, except the price threshold doesn't match the market, particularly in the ACT. Great in theory, but useless in practice. And someone else says, so 90K for a single, but only 120K for couples. That doesn't really add up. Hack. So I've really lived quite close to the poverty line and it's not really anything that anyone can justify. On Triple J. So we've been talking a lot about the cost of living lately, petrol, groceries going out. It's so expensive right now. But what if you need to spend hundreds, even thousands of dollars to take care of your health? ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is pretty common and there's now way more awareness about it among women and young adults because of people talking about it on TikTok and Instagram. But getting an ADHD diagnosis isn't cheap. You can't just rock up to your GP and you'll often spend months on a wait list. If you've gone through this, spent heaps of money to get an ADHD diagnosis, or if you're waiting for one, I really want to hear from you. Call in 1300 03536 or text 0439 757 So why is it so hard and expensive to get diagnosed? Edwina Stories here to explain. So it was over $700 for the initial consultation. I can't really afford that, you know, pretty much a week's wage. Nico is a disability worker and queer performer who has experienced ADHD-like symptoms all the way back to primary school. My parents got called into a meeting with my principal because they thought I needed to be checked out because I had some learning issues and I was disrupting everyone in the class and they wanted to hold me back. My parents just moved me to a different school. When he finally got a referral as an adult for an assessment with a psychiatrist, he realised he couldn't afford it. As a performer, for, for many years, I've really lived quite close to the poverty line and it's not really anything that anyone can justify paying $700 for one session. And yeah, I kind of turned it down. Even though he didn't end up getting an assessment, the diagnosis is on his mind constantly and he thinks the clarification and potential treatment could make his study and work and whole life a whole lot easier. ADHD Australia estimates about 1 in 20 Australians have ADHD. But there was once a bunch of talk about ADHD being overdiagnosed in kids. Are there now adults that are underdiagnosed? Well, some experts say it's not as simple as quantifying it as over or underdiagnosed because there are so many factors at play with ADHD. And if your life changes, so can the things that make the symptoms more apparent. But as adult ADHD becomes a more common discussion, some people are still struggling with the costs. Some friends throw out the crazy idea of getting Ritalin on the black market, but I don't think that's really for me. And I really would like to be doing it under professional guidance. Now, ADHD is a neurodevelopmental disorder. So if you're trying to get a diagnosis, you'll probably need to see a psychiatrist at some point, especially as they're usually the only ones who can prescribe the stimulant medication. And the cost of an appointment can be anywhere between four and seven-ish hundred dollars. You get back between two and four hundred dollars on Medicare, but often people need follow-up and even semi-regular appointments, plus medication. Unfortunately, public mental health services seem to have skipped the ADHD chapter in the book. 
That's Dr John Kramer. He has a specialty in ADHD and says it's not just the costs that prevent people. There's a very narrow bottleneck in terms of access to the needed treatments. There are limited numbers of psychiatrists, especially in rural and regional areas, and they're in private practice. He says not getting treatment can really set people back, even shorten their life expectancy. And he says there's an unfortunate overrepresentation of people in prison with ADHD. It is one of the things that puts people on the wrong side of the law. If we could provide better access where it's needed, we could make a big dent in that population. $650 is, number one, an immense amount of stress, more than a week and a half of food and rent. Gabe is a 25-year-old events producer who had been putting off getting diagnosed until they moved to regional New South Wales in the lockdown and realised it was actually way cheaper and the wait list gone. But when they got back to Sydney and needed another appointment, they were served with a $650 bill. Their immediate Medicare rebate machine wasn't working, so I had to put the rebate through the Medicare app. We are seven business days later, I have had nothing. And I don't know about the majority of people, but not getting a significant Medicare rebate back can really just screw you hard. Here's Dr. Kramer again. If you're disadvantaged financially, socially, etc., and in this country and you have ADHD, we're really pushing it uphill to get the needed treatment. And it's not just about the health of the individual, it's about the health of the country. Hack on Triple J. Edwina Story reporting there on the text line. It's going off. Someone said, took me over a year and over $1,500 for an adult woman diagnosis. Someone else says, finally off the diagnosis roller coaster. It's completely changed my life in every way for the better. Well, let's talk about this a bit more with Professor James Scott. He leads the Child and Youth Research Group at the QIMR Burkhofer Medical Research Institute. Professor Scott, thanks for talking with me. Why is ADHD an ADHD? diagnosis so expensive? Is it super complex to diagnose? Uh, uh, good evening, Ange. Uh, it can be complex to diagnose. Uh, often by the time people are adults, uh, they've been living with ADHD for many years and quite often there's associated problems with their mental health or social factors, substance use. So uh, making a correct diagnosis can be complicated. By the same token, it, it, it feels meaningless. Um, distressed to hear that people are paying six seven hundred dollars to get that diagnosis. Yeah, uh, you know it, it means it's unattainable for many people who really need to get access to care. And what's the cost of not diagnosing someone? I suppose you know going about your life and not knowing officially if you have ADHD. Well, what kind of impact can that have on a person? Well, enormous opportunity. Um, which are lost, enormous opportunities are lost. So I've got some patients who came to see me and are unemployed. I've diagnosed and treated them. They've now got very highly skilled jobs and earning excess of $100,000 a year. So this is a you know, difference of $60,000, $70,000 per annum in salaries potentially by not having that diagnosed and treatment. Yeah, absolutely. And what's what's involved in a diagnosis? Can you explain, you know, are, are there lots of tests or assessments or what, what goes into it if, if someone is listening right now and wondering what the process is like? The diagnosis 
requires a careful uh, assessment of the person's current symptoms and of their development, thinking about um, other explanations for problems of attention organisation, and then uh, really going forth with trialling of treatments which and ensuring that they're done safely. So it sounds on one hand simple, but on the other hand, that there's a lot of actual skill that goes into that. All of that said, I do think that for people with uncomplicated presentations, like those who don't have um, extra substance use problems and so forth, a diagnosis could be done by a general practitioner who's skilled up uh, on how to do mm. it. And I think there are some ways that the government could look at um, increasing access uh, to having diagnostic assessments for people. Yeah, uh, you're listening to Hack on Triple J. I'm Ange McCormack chatting with Professor James Scott about the cost of getting diagnosed with ADHD. We're hearing from so many people about how difficult it is. Sophie, you've called in. What's it been like for you? Um, well, it depends because I found out I had ADHD after first getting diagnosed with depression. Okay. Um, so I pretty much in the one year in 2018, I spent, so I hit the safety net le- like the levy. So I spent over $2,249 and apparently 80 cents. Wow. Um, so that means after a point, you then get like appointments for free. So that surprised me that I'd hit that much money to then get appointments for free. So pretty much spent around that much money in one year just trying to get stable, I guess. That's so, it's a so crazy expensive just for, you know, finding out something so important to your life. And, and Sophie, can I ask what, what it was like, what it meant for you to get diagnosed? How did that change your life? Um, look, it changed every aspect. I pretty much just found out who I truly was in a way. Yeah. I felt like had kind of validated and reasons why I am who I am and that they're like they're good. They're yeah. not just fault. They're actually something that's really cool. Thanks so much for calling in, Sophie, and I'm really glad to hear that you, you got that diagnosis and it made such a big impact on your life. Um, Professor James Scott, how common is that experience of Sophie's there of, you know, not only spending money on the diagnosis up front, but then continuing to spend money over time on, you know, you've got to keep going to these appointments, keep paying for medication if that's part of the plan for you. It, it's, it sounds like it can be a real burden financially for a lot of people. Um, I'm really pleased to hear that Sophie's on the right track. Unfortunately, what she's described is really common. Mm. And what I often see is people who are seeing clinicians who are perhaps not well skilled in diagnosing and assessing for ADHD, treating people for things like depression, anxiety, substance use, missing the ADHD diagnosis. And thus they are spending thousands of dollars on treatments that aren't effective. Um, If they had gotten the ADHD treatment up front, uh, ADHD diagnosis up front and perhaps a lot of that uh, treatment that's ineffective could be avoided. Professor James Scott, that's all we've got time for today, but thanks so much for talking with me about this really important issue. Lovely. Thanks, Anne. All the best. Um, on the Triple J text line, so many texts echoing this experience exactly. Someone says, as someone with ADHD, we have been forgotten by the medical field. And someone else says, currently doing my master's in clinical psychology and learning the reality of ADHD diagnosing has been a huge eye-opener. So expensive and time-consuming and so inaccessible. Hack. Well, I think as many flights as we can get in the air and the shorter they are to get people to travel to and from Australia, the better it is. On Triple J.
Have you seen the news about Qantas's super long-haul flights? From 2025, you'll be able to travel from Sydney to New York or London non-stop. They'll be the world's longest flights and take over 19 hours. In that time, I figured out you could watch all three Lord of the Rings movies back-to-back twice and still have an hour to spare. It's super-duper long. What do you think of this idea? Would it make you want to travel more? How would you pass the time? And what seat would you choose? Aisle, middle, window? Text me 0439 797 or call 1300 055 Let's find out more about this idea. Ben Groundwater is a travel rider and he's on the line. Ben, will you be jumping on one of these super-duper long-haul flights when they get off uh, the ground? <laughs> look, it, it might depend where I'm travelling in the plane and who I'm travelling with. Yeah, not I, with I, a small think, child. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, at 19 or 20 hours, I, I could imagine towards the front of the plane, probably going to be fairly comfortable and and pretty reasonable, whereas towards the back of the plane with maybe a couple of kids or something like that, I mean, that's pretty intimidating to sit down and and look at the screen and see that there's 20 hours to go on your flight. Yeah, or watch all those Lord of the Rings movies. To clarify, someone said, is is that the extended versions? No, I calculated it's just the regular versions um, twice, six movies. Anyway, it is very long. Um, I was actually calculating this today and I was thinking about Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, which is three and a half hours. You can watch about eight versions. Oh, fantastic. I'm sure it gets better on the seventh viewing. Um, On Hack's Instagram today, we posted about this and someone said, the idea is great great, but cost is a massive factor. It's highly likely they're going to milk us for all we got. Is that right, Ben? Do you think this will be the cheaper option because it's so brutal or will we we have to like pay for the convenience of just one flight? Uh, Well, look, Qantas are already saying that it is going to cost a little bit more to fly Mm. on these flights rather than to go with a stopover. Um, I I think the thinking being that you are paying a premium for something that shouldn't be looked at as as painful, but rather as something that cuts out a stop along the way. So it's really personal taste for people whether they think that that's worth the extra money or not. And and it's not really decided yet how much extra it's going to cost at the moment as well. That's all to be announced later on because these flights aren't due to take off until 2025. So it's still got quite a while to That's right. Yeah. yeah. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. I'm Ange McCormack. We're talking about these new long haul flights that Qantas are putting on in a couple of years. Uh, chatting to Ben Groundwater, who's a travel writer. Um, ben, they did this test flight of the route a couple of years ago. Uh, I was reading an article about it. This journalist who was on the plane said, I quote, my brain would not shut up. My body wanted to crawl into a coffin and remain there forever. Not a glowing endorsement, I'd say. These, like, these flights are tough on your body, right? You're not, humans aren't really meant to be in a plane for that long, are they? Yeah, they are tough on your body. But I think, you know, we already do 14-hour flights fairly regularly. The flights to, from Sydney to Dubai or from Melbourne to Los Angeles or something like that are already 14 hours. The 17-hour flights already direct from Darwin to London. So it's not that much more than what people are already doing. And, I mean, Qantas have said that they're going to have what they're calling a well-being zone on the plane. Mm. Um, Can you tell me about what that looks well, like? Or what? I, I, chatted, I chatted to Qantas today about that and they don't have any details to release at, at this point, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so we're not sure what that's going to entail, whether it's just a space for people to walk around or whether there'll be some sort of other comfort items, I don't know. But, you know, it's something that's obviously being considered because it is such an intimidating time to, to spend in the air. Yeah, I did see that it, it, that wellness centre, whatever... Um, 
you know, lingo they're referring to as, um, would have a hydration station, which I think um, is a tap. Uh, so, <laughs> I don't believe it could be bottles of water. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very important to stay hydrated. Um, then COVID's changed travel massively, obviously, and a lot of us are still feeling pretty uh, hesitant to travel to get on a plane, let alone a, you know, 20-hour one. Is this whole move from Qantas, you know, a, a play to entice us to get Australians overseas again? And is, is this the way to do it? I, I'm not sure about that. I think by 2025, we're going to be... Most, most airlines have forecast that by 2025, they'll be pretty much back to the way they were before COVID. Um, so I, I think this is probably a separate thing. Um, obviously, it is entice, entice, It is designed to entice people into the air to get excited about this, this uh, travel again. But I don't think it's going to make a huge amount of, of difference in terms of the amount of people who are flying. Um, that'll be pretty much the same, I would say. Yeah, and it's Sydney to New York or London. They're kind of saying you can go anywhere in the world on, on one flight. Someone's just asked, what about direct flights from Melbourne? Is that just too far or will they be included as well? No, there will be. What Qantas is saying at the moment is actually from the east coast of Australia to London and New okay. York direct. Um, so we don't have details yet, but I imagine Melbourne and Brisbane will both be included in that at some point. Yep. All right. And just quickly, this like super long haul flight feels pretty futuristic. Um, what else though could be on the agenda in terms of the future of travel, like even shorter flights, faster planes, space travel? What, what can we get, get looked forward to? Uh, look, faster planes are definitely coming in. Um, United Airlines in the US have, have already announced that they're looking at um, supersonic planes. Um, that will be able to take people mostly across uh, from the US to Europe um, super fast times. So that is kind of like the Concorde. It's like a little bit mm. back to the future, really. Um, that's a thing that just didn't really work financially at the time. But maybe there people are thinking that it will work in the future and that more people will be able to afford it. So so that's pretty exciting. So we That's pretty could, cool, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's a thing that could happen from Australia as well at some point. But yeah. Nothing's been announced, obviously. Well, Ben Granwater, thanks so much for joining us today on Hack. We're going to wrap it, have to wrap it up there. But thank you and maybe see you in the air on the super long flight in the future. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks, Anne. Hack on Triple J. That was travel writer Ben Groundwater there. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Hack Podcast. We'll be back again with you tomorrow.